This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship and innovation as well as as product design. Uh, Those of you who have listened to the show for a long time know the basic idea. I co-host the show with Rob Connybeer. He is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties. Mostly we broadcast from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco, but I'm so lucky today to be on the campus of the mothership here in Philadelphia. So that's really great. And we also have a really special show today. We normally interview entrepreneurs who are out there in the in the field growing and launching their businesses and on a full-time basis. And, and we try to share experiences in uh, uh, the challenges in real time that can be useful to our audience. But uh, this week, we have a really amazing opportunity. This happens to be the run-up to the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge, which is effectively the flagship business plan competition at the University of Pennsylvania. And we, we're going to have the finals week after next, but this week we're lucky enough to have eight of our semifinalists here on campus. And I'm going to use this opportunity to talk to talk to eight incredible new ventures. And so this is really amazing. And just to give you a sense of how serious this is and how real it is, we have prize money of $135,000. And virtually all of the ventures that have won the Wharton Business Plan Competition, or as it's now called, the Penn Wharton Startup Challenge, have gone on to be successful ventures. And so it's a, it's a really special group, and it's really amazing to see these ventures right at their moment of, of getting started. But now I'm very lucky to welcome our first guest, Haley Russell of Chipper Pet Food. Haley, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. And sorry about that long intro, but we finally <laughs> got to you. So I'm going to first start by giving our listeners a pointer to your to your website. So it's chipperpetfood.com, just chipperpetfood.com. So if you're someplace safe and can check it out, go ahead and, and do that. All right, Haley, give us the elevator pitch for Chipper. Sure. Uh, So Chipper Pet is an environmentally conscious pet food company that enables pet parents to do good for their pet and and for the planet. We do this by using sustainable alternative proteins. Our first product is a dog treat that uses cricket protein which is uh, really powerful. It has two and a half times the amount of protein as your traditional animal meats, and it uses just a tiny fraction of the land and water. It's loved by pets and enables pet parents to feel good about what they're buying. Okay, so I see with some trepidation that you've brought a sample there sitting on the console. (laughs) No trepidation. All right, I'm having my trepidation. Uh, (laughs) So I see with trepidation. So, so uh, describe this. Describe this first product for me. I'm going to grab it if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, So this is a peanut butter pumpkin treat. Mm. 
Um, so you're opening it now. Right. Enjoy. Um, okay. So and I'm opening a little Ziploc-y bag. And tell us what they look like. Yep. So it is a heart-shaped dog treat mm-hmm. uh, that has a nice complement of cricket uh, added to a peanut butter and pumpkin treat. All right, folks. Here we go. I'm gonna. I, so there's a rule in radio, which is no radio silence. Okay. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna bite and chomp, and you tell me uh, what. The, just give us the full ingredients list while I do that. Okay. Right. Sure. So we have some whole wheat, uh, egg, pumpkin, cricket. Uh, Molasses. Molasses. <laughs> I'm reading the ingredients list. You're reading the ingredients <laughs> list. You put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got it. You you got it. Really. And, yep. and in fact, I'm. It's. Uh, I taste a. I get the the pumpkin and a little bit of the and the peanut. I I, I actually don't taste uh, cricket, although I wouldn't actually know what a cricket tastes yeah, like. Yeah. So that earthy flavor that you're mm-hmm. taking tasting is the cricket. Ah. Mm-hmm. It is earthy, and it's not. Um, I would describe it as, I mean, I've, many of us have probably chomped on a dog treat before. Well, I have. And uh, they aren't sweet. So it's, yeah. it, it sort of looks like it might be a little gingerbread cookie or something, but it's, it's not that it's not sweet. But it it's certainly not objectionable. It tastes it actually tastes pretty good, right? Yeah. So your dog has a different palate than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so for them, it's it's really tasty. Well, it's 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 actually not bad. I I, I if I, I might throw it in my bag, and when I if I get hungry, I'll, I'll later. Fantastic! I'll, I'll, I, right. My roommate loves eating them. So, all right. So so Haley, you said that I want you to to back up the the claims. Well, why why just articulate first? Give me the bullet list. Why why would I care? Like why would I buy this product? What does it do for me as a as a consumer? Yeah. And and. I suppose this is one of those complex products where the the end customer is different from the customer making the purchase decision. So maybe talk us through what is the benefit proposition sure. to the to the purchaser and if there are benefits to the to the end customer, tell us about those two. Yeah, so for the purchaser, um, really people that are buying food for the dogs are looking for something that primarily is healthy for the pet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that covered with a high-protein uh, product. Um, the second thing is price point, mm-hmm. which we're competitive with other pet food products or treats on the market. Um, so that isn't a pain point. Um, and then the third thing really is what's missing in the market right now, which is the ability to kind of derive something yourself mm-hmm. from the process of buying food for your dog, which is this added environmental benefit. I so see. you're able to save land, save water, and chip in. All right. So tell us a little bit about, the, with you know, we, we, we don't have an hour to go through this, but sure. yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about what the environmental impact of the current current pet foods are and why this product is better. Yeah. So right now what we're seeing in pet food is this shift toward human grade, no byproduct products that are super high in protein. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they are more and more meat intensive. Um, And along with that comes some of the challenges in terms of for instance, beef using a whole lot of land and water to produce. Mm -hmm. Whereas cricket, on the other hand, if you're looking pound for pound, it's somewhere around 4,800 gallons to produce a a kilogram of beef and one 
gallon of water to produce a kilogram of cricket. No way. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. So it's essentially uh, almost 100% reduction yeah. in the water. That's yeah. that's really it's remarkable. Huge. Yeah. So if you're thinking about 12 bags of uh, chipper treats, mm-hmm. eight-ounce bags over mm-hmm. the course of, say, a year, you can save about 1,000 gallons of water and 50 square meters of land. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Now, I... That's just for the treats mm-hmm. now is but but is the ambition broader than that? Yeah, so there are some natural extensions. We're starting with treats because it's a nice way to allow people to trial it mm-hmm. right um, and also it's a nice complement to what dogs are eating already because mm-hmm. it's a different mix of amino acids. Uh, I would say that our next step, beyond dog treats would be things like mixers, toppers with regular food, and then moving into cat treats. Yeah. Um, and then from there, we would be looking at daily food. All right. So one of the questions I have about this is it's it's not, well, it's not that hard for me to imagine how I might produce a few hundred kilos of, of crickets yeah. to put into treats. What? How easy is it to scale cricket production and maybe talk a little bit about that and, you know, how many kilos could be produced and what would those systems look like that produce it? And yep. maybe how did you figure that out? How did you figure out how to get cricket for your for your product? So I actually know this very well because mm-hmm. I started out with a cricket farm. Um, so in spring of last year, I developed my own farm uh, out of the garage. And did you do it in anticipation of this project or were you just... No, actually, the eureka moment was like I was interested in edible insects. Mm -hmm. I thought that there was a great opportunity for it as a sustainable alternative protein. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to learn everything I could about it. I built a cricket farm and from there realized actually that my golden doodle wren loved eating insects. Uh, yes. Wow, that was the epiphany. That was the wow moment. Wow. You know, I'm I'm guessing you don't have any trouble at cocktail parties with that story. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. <laughs> All right and then Ren helped out. <laughs> yeah. And then how do you how do you how did you well actually let's let's go back to the beginning. When you you're currently a a Wharton MBA student, you'll be graduating, uh, hopefully, if you if you pass in your bachelor of exams <laughs> in the next six weeks or so. Almost there. Yeah. Um, ha, ha, when you came to, to Wharton, did you envision that you would, well, you, I bet you didn't envision you would be a cricket entrepreneur, but <laughs> did you envision you would be an entrepreneur and were you looking for an opportunity? Tell us how the, all that came together. Yeah. So I had actually worked at a couple different food startups before mm. coming to Wharton. Um, so I come from a family of entrepreneurs and uh, had worked in food and beverage and so could envision myself doing something within that space. Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, um, but this has felt like a pretty natural transition. Yeah. And what is – so we're, we're just a couple weeks from the end of school. Sure. And what's the, what's the plan? Well, we're pleased to have just won the iDesign Prize. Oh yeah, <laughs> I should I should call that out. So let me just let me just give congratulate you. So so Haley won one of the flagship competitions on campus just uh, this week, I believe it was Monday. I was there. I was a judge actually, and and uh, it's it's serious. It's Fifty five thousand dollars. And what was really notable about it was you won both. The judges award the fifty thousand and the People's Choice Award of five thousand. That's yeah. how it became fifty five. It's a real 000. treat. Okay, so you got fifty five thousand dollars. So I interrupted you. What's the What's the plan? Yeah. So the plan is to use that 
to drive toward a fall launch mm-hmm. of the treats. So mm-hmm. we have a manufacturer lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, over the summer, we're going to build some marketing buzz mm-hmm. um, and then look to launch in September, um, secure a handful of pet stores and distributors, and hopefully in September and October. And we'll go from there. so tell me about, I, I think you have a, a, a co-founder too, and I, my guess is $55,000 is not enough to to uh, sustain you all even on ramen noodles for the first year or so. So will you will you do this? Will at least some of you do it part-time? Will some of you do it full-time? And how have you thought about the financing yeah. of the business? Yeah. So I'll be working on it full-time right out of the gate. Um, my co-founders will be engaged in other opportunities okay, while so they're also take working jobs. on this. So they're going to be able to take a job with a paycheck while they work on this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we'll parallel process. Well, that's a that's a, a pretty good model. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a great product. It's got a definitely got a hook that that should get allow you to get started. And I also love the way you've sort of got a, a wedge to get started with treats, but it opens up into this much bigger opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, Haley, I wish you the best of luck in the finals of the uh, Penn Wharton Startup Challenge, and thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. All right. So for more information, I'm going to give you that URL again. It's Chipper Pet Food, just those words, chipperpetfood.com. And you should, I, I'm guessing you're going to be in the fall time frame, you're going to be able to buy, buy some, uh, uh, some cricket-based dog treats on the Chipper website. So uh, check it out. All right. Well, I'm super lucky now to be joined in the studio by Seth Neal, who is a co-founder of Welligence. Uh, Welligence is another semifinalist. Seth, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So, Seth, you had the benefit of seeing here listening to Haley get grilled. So uh, we're going to take basically the same format. Give me the elevator pitch for Welligence. So uh, I didn't bring any treats, unfortunately, Uh, just algorithms for me. But uh, so that, it, that is a treat for me. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, so it, it won't surprise any of the listeners that uh, one of the largest industries in the world is the energy industry. Um, if you look at uh, you know the top companies in the world um, by market cap, certainly a lot of them, the majority of them are in oil and gas. And so a tremendous amount of uh, capital has been invested in improving the processes for um, upstream exploration. So really producing oil and gas, whether it's drilling, uh, fracking, um, but, uh, what really surprised me, uh, when I first found this out is that, uh, in some areas, the same level of investment has not really, um, been applied on the data side. So in terms of the algorithms that really determine, uh, what the future production is going to look like and, uh, yeah, you know, where to drill and kind of to help, uh, the real decision makers, uh, put, put data behind their decisions. So what Welligence does is, uh, we gather the richest data set of uh, upstream oil and gas data, uh, we think, in the world, uh, particularly in Latin America, and we build our own proprietary models to forecast well-by-well production, which is then combined into these um, pretty clean uh, data tools for our clients to use and make better decisions. All right. Well, boy, there's a lot here. 
and I really had to switch gears from uh, dog treats to uh, big data. So, um, first of all, I want to I want to just congratulate you on an awesome name. Wellagence is a great name, Thanks. and I and you have the full dot com, which is awesome. So, if if folks want to check it out, it's Wellagence dot com. That's like intelligence, but Wellagence dot com. All right. Well, let's start with the the customer side of this business. So give us an example of who cares about this data. Yeah, yeah. sure. So there's a couple main client uh, segments, uh, but the big ones are going to be exploration and production companies who are either looking to acquire new assets or just want to see how the outside market would view their own assets. Uh, so that's extremely important for planning, um, you know, how they allocate capital. Uh, okay, yeah. but all that. So, would they want to know about their own assets or about the 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 context in which they're operating? Yeah. So it 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 could be both. It could mm-hmm. be in terms of acquiring new ones, mm-hmm. uh, seeing how we would value those based on what our production forecasts look like, or their own if they wanted to sell um, to try and validate their own kind of internal models. But this is what they do. Is right. is is uh, is explore and explore and acquire and and what what are the two? It's explore and used another word. Uh, produce. Produce. Yeah. Explore yeah, and yeah. produce. So this is what they do. Yeah. Why don't they have models to do this? So so they do about maybe their own assets. Yeah. But in terms of other people's assets, okay. I think uh, part of the reason is that um, you know acquiring the data is difficult mm-hmm. uh, and. It's kind of a skill set that you'd find more like a data science skill set mm-hmm. that maybe is less common mm-hmm. or uh, the industry hasn't fully embraced yet. Um, but I think uh, the real answer to this question is that they do have very complex systems and these are large companies that look at it, but they all take an immense amount of outside research. And the real issue is that the outside research uh, currently doesn't use any of I the see. available data. Yeah. yeah. All right. So then let's flip to the to the supply side, to mm-hmm. the data side. Where, where does this data come from? I, I wouldn't think that people operating wells would provide their data. So so just tell us a little bit about where it comes from. Yeah. So um, right now our main focus is on Latin America. Mm-hmm. And uh, the in almost all of these countries, the main oil producer uh, is the state-run oil company. Uh-huh. And they, they um, typically provide access to their data for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, to encourage outside investment, for example, mm-hmm. um, or just a level of transparency that's expected from a, a government entity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a main reason they provide the data. On the flip side, uh, that makes because it's kind of not a commercial entity that's providing the data uh, for a specific purpose. It makes the data uh, pretty messy, and mm-hmm. sometimes you know there's a million municipal sites that need to be scraped and cleaned and cross-checked. Uh, so it's a pretty arduous process. Yeah, and it strikes me that it, some of the some of the benefits of the so-called big data movement are actually pretty mundane stuff, like getting all the data, getting the rows and columns right, and getting all the timestamps right, and all that stuff. Pretty mundane exactly, stuff, yeah. but but totally. tremendous value if you can go through the work of doing that. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, just even getting all the data collated and cross-referenced and in the same, you know, Amazon database right. with the columns correctly named is a big win uh, because it is really valuable data. Yeah. So, so Seth, you don't seem like you're from Latin America, nor do you seem like you're in the oil industry. Where where did this idea come from and where how did you get involved? In yeah, that? so uh uh the, the credit for the idea really goes to my uh, great co-founder and our CEO, Ross Lubeckin. So he's yeah. a Wharton grad, class of 2017. Yeah. 
Um, he's from Texas uh, and had worked in the oil industry his entire mm-hmm. uh, young career for about eight years before business school. Um, so he was actually running a third-party energy research um, uh, division in Brazil, the Brazil office of the largest incumbent for a number of years before uh, business school, worked in energy private equity, mm-hmm. and actually bought um, a went, worked on a deal where they bought uh, a third-party energy research company. And um, he saw the difficulty that energy research companies had with covering this uh, Latin American space because they didn't know where the data was. It's hard to get. And uh, kind of realized that taking this more machine learning, big data approach to forecasting production, as opposed to analysts with Excel spreadsheets, kind of big round whole numbers could really uh, improve the way things were done. Mm -hmm. And then how did you get involved? Yeah, so I'm doing a Ph.D. uh, at the Warden School in Statistics Mm -hmm. uh, with a focus on machine learning. I work in computer science. Um, And I was TAing Ross's uh, introductory statistics class. uh, When he was a student? In the business school, yeah. Ah. uh, During my second year of grad school. And actually, Emil Pitkin, who's another Warden professor, introduced us. Wow. So that that leads me to a question maybe you can help help our listeners with. One of the questions I get, I would say I get it from every third entrepreneur is – a student entrepreneur is how do I find a technical co-founder and especially in a really hot field. And I suppose that's a two part question. The first is uh, why aren't you working, you know, on the AlphaGo team at at Google, right. Or something like that, which is a, is, is going to be their tremendous opportunities at some of the big tech companies in industry generally for the skill set you have. So that would be on, you know, at the personal level, but then more generally, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are trying to find technical co-founders in a really hot field? Yeah. yeah. So certainly this isn't, as a, someone doing a PhD in machine learning, this wasn't the first time I've been approached to work on a startup. But what really uh, stuck out to me with Ross was, first of all, his uh, incredible experience in mm-hmm. the field. So he really knew what the kind of state of the art was and what could be done to improve it. Mm -hmm. And he had a very clear plan uh, in terms of whether it's raising money um, or the the right, you know, clients to contact uh, the products that we would build. And I could really see that, um, you know, if I put the time in early, uh, it could really go somewhere because, you know, when you. Uh, when you you can build the best algorithm in the world, yeah. but if it's not being used by somebody, it's not as exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, maybe try and appeal to the technical co-founders entrepreneurial bent as opposed to, you know, being the the 10th guy working on reinforcement learning on AlphaGo or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So so what what is appealing? And what was appealing to you? I mean, getting you know entrepreneurship, right? Gaining on the ground floor, yeah. and being part of something mm-hmm. that I certainly get. Mm-hmm. But but what about the uh, in terms of the tech, technical challenge? Yeah, so uh, it just seemed like a really untapped data set, mm-hmm. um, and the prospect of just being the first one to really make sense of it was exciting. Um, and also, just as a complement to my research, which is more theoretical, just mm-hmm. the ability to apply all the things I've learned. Um, you know, at Penn and uh, in the last couple of years on a real world challenge on a data set that matters was very exciting. Yeah. So it sounds like Ross graduated last last spring. Yeah. And so give us a sense of what the what the plan is here. you got the business plan com- competition coming up. Yeah. But but I, I'm guessing he's sort of running right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're, we're yeah. both definitely running. Uh, we raised an initial round of funding mm-hmm. about a month ago. Um, and so we're kind of scaling up right now. We're preparing to deliver our 
uh, kind of flagship product, which is a portal uh, with Brazil and Mexico in about a month. Mm -hmm. And the team's about, uh, you know, we're hiring rapidly. So seven or eight full-time people right now. Yeah. So I I did want, I know you're the CTO and and probably Ross had to lead the fundraising effort, but mm-hmm. uh, but I want I want to ask you a question about fundraising. This is a it's pretty arcane product, and and it's I, I wonder what what advice you know what lessons you've learned about how to pitch this and how to communicate it yeah. to somebody who isn't in this industry, and, so, and and maybe some reflections on that fundraising. So I think yeah. the fact that it is an arcane product yeah. is a blessing in disguise, yeah, because we really went to people who knew the space and knew what the value proposition uh-huh. was, and it wasn't an area uh, where they're getting a lot of pitches like this. Um, so I think that worked to our benefit. And that's who our investors ended up being, mm-hmm. uh, kind of energy insiders, uh, mm-hmm. one being a large private equity firm, uh, energy private equity firm in Texas, and the others uh, being um, you know, private equity investors with a focus on energy. Yeah. You know, so I, I actually wondered, we didn't talk very long about the customer side. You mm-hmm. talked mostly about people who are directly in the oil and gas business. Yeah, but talk yeah. a little bit about those who make money off information. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that's almost an equally large yeah, client. Yeah, yeah. We just kind of got some. Um, but uh, private equity is a big potential client uh, because, uh, you know, this, yeah, you're right. This They aren't producing these assets, right. but they still need the data. They're still putting in the money. And so to give them a screening tool where they can easily visualize things is a big uh, value proposition for mm-hmm. them. Uh, and then there's... Uh, potentially hedge funds, which is a little more uh, down the line, who trade, say, municipal bonds backed by oil or all these So this would be along the lines of those industries or those companies that provide weather data to private to hedge funds that are trading on agriculture, right? They're looking for some kind of information. Yeah, exactly. A little more curated because we also provide our own analysis and algorithms and valuations, but yes. Yeah. All right, Seth. Well, uh, it's super interesting, and it's a nice example of an entrepreneurial opportunity growing out of prior experience where you're in a job, you're in an industry, you recognize an opportunity. And then I love the fe- the way the team came together here at Penn. So uh, good luck with the with the business plan competition or with the Penn Wharton Startup Challenge uh, next time. And thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. So for more information about Welligence, you just go to Welligence.com. I'm very lucky to be joined now by Michael Wong, who is the founder of Instahub. Michael, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me here today. All right. So the way I want to uh, – first things first, let's just point our listeners to your website. It's getinstahub.com, getinstahub.com. Michael, give us the elevator pitch for Instahub. Yeah, sure. Um, our vision is to simply simplify automation with snap-on solutions to help automate energy savings. Okay, and I think we probably need just another sentence on what Snap-on means and how you do that. So yeah. tell, describe the product for us. Yeah. So um, our product is a motion-sensing device that goes on top of a light switch, and it mechanically flips the switch for you. So imagine a mini robot on top of a light switch. Mm-hmm. You do not have to pull anything out of the wall or hire an electrician to rewire any systems. Mm-hmm. And h- how exactly does it work? So it, had mul- it has multiple sensors, um, so uh, maybe like a radar, um, PIR sensor, to, and it works with smart algorithm to really understand presence within um, space so that it doesn't turn off on you when you're still in the room, and it should turn off right when you leave the room. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, what does the, you said snap on, so say a little bit more about how I install it or how it's installed. Yeah. Yeah. Currently it's battery powered. Um, we're moving into a version where it's batteryless version. Mm -hmm. Um, you simply remove two screws from your faceplate Mm -hmm. and snap our system in place. Um, there are two prongs, um, that would, uh, make contact, direct contact with the screws that is live, but you do not, um, need to shut down your power. I see. So it snaps, it essentially snaps onto the conventional toggle switch that's in the box and in doing so makes contact with the with the two the two screws on that yep. on that switch. Exactly. All right. Now let me ask a dumb question. Well, actually I, I think I answered my own question. One side of that switch has to be hot, right? And so you have power available in the switch. And so in the eventual commercial product you'll be able to derive some power from the switch. Is yep, that right? That's correct. Okay. All right. So who's the target customer for this product? Currently, we're targeting small to medium-sized Class B commercial buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, majority of commercial buildings are Class B, where they're ready for um, operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. And um, generally, um, less than 20% of commercial buildings have occupancy sensors. And the main issue is because of financial and logistical hurdles. Um, so it's very expensive to hire electricians or contractors to come in. The most important part is the logistical aspect. You mm-hmm. have to go through paperwork, multiple departments, and figure out when to, when to shut down the, the building or floor um, to be able to come in to really just rewire your traditional sensors. Yeah. And and so that's on the installation side. Give, give us a sense of how big a problem this is and what kind of opportunity it is for the building owner and for society. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. for uh, for society in all, um, it's a $25 billion electric waste every single year in the U.S. just for not turning off the lights when we don't need them. In a building, um, we're looking between ten to $20,000 in annual savings, um, depending on the number of rooms, type of bulbs, and the occupancy habit. Mm-hmm. And so... And the, the alternative solution for them... Actually, let me back up and say, is it... Is it the case that all new construction would would have occupancy sensors in? Is that a code requirement now, or or yeah. it would just be an obvious thing for an owner to do? Yeah. It's it's both. Um, yeah. There's new code requirements requiring them to um, install occupancy sensors mm-hmm. um, per square uh, for 500 square footage. Mm-hmm. And and so this would be a retrofit. Yes. And it would be an owner, a sort of do-it-yourself retrofit, or at least the, the maintenance guy it wouldn't require an electrician or electrical crew to come in. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Michael, where did this idea come from? So um, this is back in freshman year when I was just walking back um, to my room really late at night and realizing a pattern that many lights are still on at maybe even 4 or 5 a.m. in the mm-hmm. morning. And I was just wondering, and I suddenly realized that there are a lot of reminder notes to tell us to turn off the lights when we're the last person in the room to conserve energy, but a lot of people ignore them, and I know that changing behavior is very um, difficult. Um, so that just really sparked in during freshman year of summer. Yeah. And what year are you in now? Uh, I am senior. And what are you studying? Um, so I'm in Wharton studying finance, entrepreneurial management, and marketing and operations. All right. So... Uh, Michael, I wouldn't I wouldn't think of a Wharton finance major taking on this project. So, uh, what didn't you know when you were a freshman, and what have you learned, and how have you uh, figured out how to get this done? Yeah, what didn't I know? Well, oh, that's sort of a big question. I know. Yeah, yeah there's still a lot I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, supply chain side, I'm still learning a little bit more about that. 
Um, I mean, the basic con- uh, finance concepts. I, I've taken uh, multiple classes to learn about um, what that entail, and it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that I was very passionate about entrepreneurship from the start, mm-hmm. and just pursued it. But but this is not. This is actually a. You know, you're not you're not going to Mars, but it's still a technical. It's a technical problem. I mean, designing one of these. So so how? T- t- tell us how you went about that, because I, I get this question a lot. I'm a, you know, somebody says, "Hey, I'm I got this idea, um, but I don't know how to do it, how to how to build it." So how did you go about it, and what advice would you give someone who has an idea but it involves some technology? Mm, yeah. yeah. So I'm really passionate about technology mm-hmm. and hardware. Um, I ended up taking a couple of physics and engineering classes, mm-hmm. so that gave me a little help um, understanding some basic concepts. But I really just asked a lot of questions around uh, with professors, my friends, and just you know sharing the idea. And someone said, "Hey, maybe you could try that, and uh, maybe I could help you prototype this." Mm-hmm. Um, so my advice would be: don't be afraid to share your ideas. Um, you should really just test it out and ask people, especially on a technical aspect. Um, I, I mean, I don't design the the PCBs, mm-hmm. or I don't you know That's design the circuit everything. board. The yeah. circuit board, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, being able to talk to multiple people um, and get their insights, mm-hmm. that was super helpful. Yeah. I, I seem to remember you took, what course was it? It was a course somehow related to product design? Yeah, no, it was exactly product design <laughs> uh, with you last year. Oh, last it was year. with me. Yes, oh, yes, funny yes. you should mention that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so I, I guess I would generalize that a little bit to be to say, I, I mean, in fact, what I tell most of those people is, you know, what's what's holding you up? Go ahead and make a prototype, or you know, even if it's if it's cardboard and duct tape. And one of the myths that I think people have in society have is that you learn how to do engineering in engineering school, and it's not clear that. You, I mean, I'm trained as an engineer, but most of what you learn in engineering school is pretty theoretical, and so it's actually. As it, building stuff is a little more accessible than most people think it is, and so I encourage them just to get started, and that also gives you a something to show people and get them to react to, and also a way to solicit some help is if you've at least taken a stab at it yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I actually uh, made it out uh, the first type of model. It was out of cardboard boxes mm-hmm. and some magnets, mm-hmm. and then just made holes in, inside um, and then just showed it to people and said, what do you think of this? Look, this is how it snaps onto a right. light switch. Can you imagine this automating your lights, like physically flipping your switch? And getting initial feedback was helpful, um, especially when they asked about the, the aesthetics, the, the size, and um, what it's made out of. Um, and then I literally showed that to uh, my co-founders and they prototyped something within a few days after. Yeah, you know, that's often a, a good strategy. You show your your first attempt to somebody who really has skills and they're just pulled in there. It's like, oh, I can do better. You know, I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell Michael, one of the things I was impressed with when I learned about this project, I I, um, I, I heard you give a pitch on a couple of days ago and was the trial you've run with the University of Pennsylvania. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. We're very fortunate to have um, received the Penn uh, Green Fund 
which was initial capital to be able to help us get the equipments and components to be able to build multiple devices. Um, we're partnered with Warden Operations, um, and we have these devices in their office spaces, actually. So the people who's running these um, Wharton buildings are actually using our devices. And initially, we got a lot of good feedback about the aesthetics, the battery life, the um, algorithm, how often it turned off on them. And today, um, it doesn't turn off on them um, as it did before. Yeah. So um, we improved our algorithm by understanding occupancy trends in the mm-hmm. rate. And um, without that, I think it would have been much more difficult to be able to um, optimize our product. So uh, that's awesome. And, and it's one of the, I mean, universities can be pretty friendly places. And it, and I think I find the staff to be particularly open to getting involved with students. So that's, it's, it's a nice place to try out ideas. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the plan is, what you do next year. So you're junior, so you got one more year. Yeah. Uh, so um, the big next step would be um, piloting with the city of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got an agreement to um, pilot in one to two municipal buildings. And we recently got into the um, NextFab Rapid Hardware Accelerator, mm-hmm. which will really help us bring our current prototype into near a finished product. So then we could you know, produce maybe 50 to 100 of these to do a full-on pilot um, to, to really prove it out. Yeah, I would say that's that's a fairly common pathway for hardware entrepreneurs. You get you get something going, maybe get a little evidence, and then there are quite a few hardware-based accelerators out in various places and they can really lend some tremendous resources and expertise to get it to the next level. Um Michael, well, it's it's terrific and I'm very excited to see the progress. I've been watching this project for a couple of years now. It's very exciting to see the progress. And uh, good luck week after next, and thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. All right. So for more information about Instahub, you can go to getinstahub.com. Okay. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. And today we're talking to eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge. Okay, my next guest is Chanel Fields, who is the founder of MD Ally. Chanel, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let me first give the URL. So it's M-D-A-L-L-Y, M-D-A-L-L-Y, M-D-A-L-L-Y.com. And... Uh, Chanel, give us the elevator pitch for MD Ally. Sure. So MD Ally is a non-emergency 911 navigation solution that ensures the appropriate use of emergency resources by providing those non-emergency callers with immediate access to medical guidance, transportation services, and then also scheduling into more appropriate sites of care. Okay. So let's see. I... Uh, unfortunately, last summer I was at a I was at a friend's house listening to uh, some music and uh, had taken a really long bike ride and had been dehydrated. And I passed out in the, in the uh, in at the concert, and um, they called nine one one. Okay, what would have happened if they had been if the system had been using MD Ally? Yeah, so it really depends on what the chief complaint is that's identified when that call comes in. Mm-hmm. But essentially, when you call 911, they take you through a series of questions. The dispatcher takes you through a series of questions to understand the level of acuity of the caller. Mm-hmm. So based on the level of acuity that's determined on a scale of 
alpha to delta, so alpha being low acuity, non-emergencies, to delta, which are high acuity, dispatch right right away, depending on where you fell on that scale would determine whether or not you came to us or not. So if you were considered a low acuity caller, then you would come through MD Allies Flow, and essentially what the dispatcher would do is offer the caller the opportunity to speak to a certified medical professional that would provide guidance on the most appropriate site of care, and we would also provide uh, transportation scheduling, so leveraging Uber Health or Lyft for patients, and then schedule you into an urgent care center if that was what you needed, or PCP, or still schedule the transportation to the emergency room. Okay, so help me understand how it works now. So the, the dispatcher... Even now, the dispatcher does this acuity assessment. Is that right? That's right. So we this process has been around basically since the 80s. So it's called priority dispatch protocols. And basically, there are determinate protocols that will classify that level of emergency. Mm -hmm. And this process works really well for understanding the complaint and the response needed. The current process is, let's say if you're an alpha, this protocol determines what level of medical support you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to get an EMT basic life support, which is associated with alphas, or if you're a delta, then you would get either an EMT advanced life support or paramedic. Mm-hmm. So a more advanced medical crew would respond. But but even for alpha, they're they're sending somebody? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the current challenge, and this is where our opportunity lies, is the current challenge is when you call 911, the patient is considered the primary decision maker because yeah. that's the person who has the most contacts on their medical condition. Mm-hmm. The dispatcher is not a medical professional. Yeah. So legally, they cannot provide any medical guidance mm. to the caller. If you called with a splinter, they right. couldn't tell you you don't need to go to the hospital, right. you don't need an ambulance. So legally, they have to dispatch wow. with every request. Yeah. So that's where the first set of costs come in with the ambulance transport. And then an ambulance is only allowed to drop off in one location, which is the emergency room okay. of a hospital. All right. So in my case, um, if MD, if they'd been in the MD ally system, the dispatcher could have dispatched them to the to the to the MD ally system, right? Mm-hmm. So walk us through again. Now that we're paying attention, exactly how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you came through our flow, mm-hmm. uh, if the caller comes through our flow after you are identified as a low acuity caller. When you come to us, we the first thing we do is we facilitate a telehealth care visit. Okay. So that's providing basically a, a virtual care visit for those who don't know what telehealth it, is. Let me interrupt you. But mm-hmm. but is the ambulance still in the way or not? So the decision maker remains the caller remains the decision maker. Mm-hmm. So if the if you wanted the ambulance to still be dispatched, the ambulance would be dispatched okay. right away. That's not something that we're trying to change. All right. Uh, if you say, you know what, yes, I'd actually like to talk to a physician ah, first, okay. then you have the option to come to us. And that's when you would come into the MD Ally flow. Yep. So another important thing to understand is that we don't dictate the pathway that the caller goes down. So the patient remains that primary decision maker. We're just providing them with additional care options because this is also beneficial for the patient in the sense that it saves them time and money as well. So for some homegrown implemented programs that are instituted in a few cities, they've actually found that their patient approval rating is north of 90% Mm -hmm. because a lot of times patients call in and they don't know their level of acuity. They don't know whether or not they're experiencing an emergency. So to be able to call 911 and talk to a physician in a matter of minutes who can help you with making that decision is extremely beneficial for the caller as well. What what evidence is there that telemedicine is, is reliable or accurate 
you know, what's the rate of false negatives, false positives, that sort of thing in telemedicine? Yeah. Yeah. So for traditional telehealth companies, so companies like Teladoc, American mm-hmm. Well, Doc on Demand, it's it's pretty reliable. Mm-hmm. So tr- telehealth in the traditional sense is generally used for primary care visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the software that's leveraged whether it's video conferencing software or just audio, it's been around for a very long time. So it's very reliable technology that's leveraged. What we're doing is taking that same strong, reliable technology and just integrating it into the 911 call flow Mm -hmm. to drive further innovation there so that callers have an additional benefit when calling in, but also municipalities have an additional way to manage this volume, which is increasing at a rate of 5% each year. Yeah. Where where did the idea come from, Chanel? So it actually came from, it started in a bit of a different place. So my father was a volunteer EMT growing up. So mm-hmm. I've always been really passionate about the emergency medical services space. I loved hearing the stories. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? What city? Long Island, New York. Yeah. So from yeah. Huntington, yeah. yeah. Uh, Huntington Fire Station. It was really great hearing the stories from yeah. him every day. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and so... That really kind of set the foundation for my love for healthcare and EMS. Mm-hmm. Then I went on after school to work for a company called Athena Health, mm-hmm. which does cloud-based um, EMR and practice management solutions. And um, while I was there, this was about a year ago, I started to have more conversations with my father about being an EMT way back in the day, mm-hmm. and then also current EMTs that I was working with. And we had really interesting conversations about the lack of innovation in the EMS space. So that was kind of what sparked the initial idea. But even before I had finished applying to Wharton, I had read research by a professor here in the healthcare program. His name is uh, Guy David. And he did a study that showed that low-income and minority communities have higher rates of DOAs and that that is somewhat associated with longer ambulance wait times. Hmm. And so I thought that that was really interesting and incredibly antiquated that you call 911 and then you just sit there yeah. and you wait. And if you're in a low income or minority community, you could be waiting 20 minutes, you could be yeah. waiting 30 minutes, and you can die a thousand times in that amount of time, yeah. right? So I just thought it was really antiquated that that was still the system and that we have something as awesome as telehealth. And my initial thought was, well, why don't we just integrate telehealth into 911 call flow so that, and it started with in emergency situations, mm-hmm. when you call 911, you get a physician right away. And that someone has eyes on you, they could start facilitating yeah. that medical guidance so that before the ambulance gets there, the care timeline starts. So it was flipping that care timeline and moving up the clock of emergency care. So that was actually the original business idea. Mm-hmm. And over the last six months, I've had a lot of meetings and conversations to figure out what would be the right model, uh, who would pay for something like yeah. that. And what I found along that journey was actually that there was a lot of value related to helping with this non-emergency challenge Mm. and using telehealth in the 911 call flow to provide an additional pathway for them because the clinical challenge currently is that they're taking away ambulance availability from true callers. And so there's actually a lot of stories of people who've passed away during something called a code zero event. Mm -hmm. And a code zero event essentially just means that there are no ambulances available. Wow. So, but it, but it's this really challenging situation where the person who benefits most, in this case, the patient, isn't really in a position to make the purchase decision on this. So, so who, do, who's, where's the financial wedge in the system, and how do you get started? Yeah. So, at no point in our model had we built in the caller 
paying for right. the service. Right. Uh, so we actually have a lot of great options from a revenue perspective mm-hmm. around who would pay for this because the ROI is there for the patient, as you mentioned. It's also there for the municipality mm. because this is a huge cost for them going on these non-emergency runs. So so let me just interrupt you for a second. Mm-hmm. So in, in most communities, does the municipality operate the 911 system and the EMT system? Yeah. So in ah. most municipalities, it's actually a fire EMS ah. system. And that's why you all a lot of times you see fire trucks yeah. and ambulances together. So yeah. generally they're run together. So there's an ROI component there for them. And then also tracing the cost savings with hospitals, there's a benefit to driving more value to their outpatient facilities, but also improving their clinical outcomes in the ER. Because research shows that if you go to the ER on a day that it's overcrowded, your risk of death can actually increase by 8.9%. Wow. And then when you really look at the big financial beneficiaries, it it really comes to insurance payers who are paying out these claims. And we've seen a lot in the news about this lately around insurance payers paying out these non-emergency claims or denying them really. And that causes a PR firestorm. Yeah. So we didn't talk about the provider side at all. Uh, That's the other piece you have to put together. So Mm -hmm. how have you tackled that? Yeah, so we are planning to build out a physician network. Mm -hmm. And we actually are very close to signing uh, an agreement and a partnership with a few well-known hospitals in the area Mm -hmm. who have centers for innovation Mm -hmm. and are going to partner with us to let us recruit against their physicians and their nurses to build out our physician network. And so that's actually where we're starting with the building the physician network. And what we'll be doing is leveraging the excess capacity of physicians Mm -hmm. so that they have the flexibility to sign on and take some of these calls. Yeah, and that that pathway has been plowed by some of the other telemedicine providers. Yeah, Yeah. so that's a popular model. Yeah. So, Chanel, I'm just looking at your bio, and it looks like you've got another year at Wharton. You're a Wharton Mm -hmm. MBA student in uh, graduating next year. So what's the plan over the next year? we just got about a minute. Yeah, so we just won the Summer Venture Award. So this summer we will be here in Philadelphia continuing to run the business and gain additional traction. I'll be working on this full time mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially next year trying to go to class on again yeah and then after graduation it'll be you know launching and running the business as well yeah so just for those who don't know this program the summer venture award is is essentially a cash grant to students that allows them to forego taking an internship at Goldman Sachs or something mm-hmm. uh, to work on their 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 venture and it's a program my my staff runs and I'm very proud of it and uh, this is just why, because it, it, this is a good example of why, because it, let, it lets you work on amazing stuff. So, uh, Chanel, it's really interesting, uh, and I wish you the best of luck week after next. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. All right. For more information about MD Ally, you can go to mdally.com. That's M-D-A-L-L-Y.com. Uh, coming up, Raging Jung joins me to talk about her team's plans to help prevent blindness in glaucoma patients. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.